Thank you for joining our expository Bible study at Truth Matters Church. Today we conclude our look at the riders of the colored horses as found in Revelation chapter 6 with an examination of the fourth horse and its rider named Death. Using scripture as our guide, we exposit the purpose and authority of this angel and how it impacts our view of end times prophecies. Leading our study, here is Pastor Alex Cataroja. What we will be doing today is we will be doing a brief recap of the first three seals vision. Where we last left off, where it was in Revelation chapter 6, and at this point in the vision, our Lord was found worthy to break open the sealed book that was on, on the, in the Father's hand who was sitting on the throne. And when we pick it up in chapter 6, our Lord is starting to break the seals. We last finished the third seal, but what we'll do is we will just do a brief recap just to get reacclimated with those learnings. Then we're going to read the four horsemen passage, which is associated with these four seals in Revelation 6, 1 through 8. And then we're going to pick things back up in the fourth seal, and it's only two verses. But I don't know if you saw on the slide on the bottom, there's more to the two verses. So with that, do you guys remember where we are at this point in the vision? You remember the, the scales? Okay, and we will get to the third seal. But something to keep in mind. Remember, John was, on, was exiled in Patmos, and he was given this great vision that first century. And as he was given this great vision, it was revealed to him by the risen Lord of the things which are and which is to come. And as John is describing in this great vision, he sees the risen Lord. And he sees the risen Christ standing among seven golden lampstands. And when John was given the interpretation of those lampstands, I'm sorry, the seven churches and the seven stars in his hands represents the angels over the seven churches. And as he was describing this risen Lord, we get to the writings of the seven letters to the seven churches. And as we went through those seven letters to the seven churches, we found and learned that there was an angel associated with those churches and that the risen Lord was writing concerning that church and the angel over that church, but also looking to the very end. And then after we got through that seven letters to the seven churches study, we were taken into heaven. John was taken up into heaven. And he described to us in graphic detail of what he saw. And there's, right now we don't see it, but where God is, where heaven is, in the center of it all is a throne. And who is seated on the throne is God the Father. And surrounding the throne, there was four living creatures. I know a lot of this sounds fiction, but this is what John saw. And as he saw this vision and was taken into heaven, he saw the four living creatures, and then he saw 24 thrones around the throne with 24 elders sitting 
on the throne wearing a crown. So you have a throne, you have 24 thrones encompassing the throne, you have the four living creatures before the throne, and then we have myriads of myriads of angels surrounding the throne. And in this great vision, there was a lamb described as if slain. And when there was a pronouncement in heaven, like who is found, who is worthy to take a sealed scrolled book in the Father's hand who's sitting on the throne. And then for a moment, there was no one who was found worthy. But then John started to weep. And then one of the elders told him, said, John, stop weeping. Behold, the lion from the line of Judah. He is found worthy to take the seal book and break it. And what we learned is that that sealed book, which is the contents of what we're studying in these seal visions are judgments and decrees from God the Father himself, consisting of mourning, lamentations, and woe. Beginning with the people of Israel and that land, and then this will expand globally. So in chapter 6, where we are now, this is where our risen Lord, who was found worthy to break open these seals, started to break them open. And here's a recap of that first seal. You know, something to keep in mind for us as we get reminded of our study is contrary to a lot of popular teachings out there, there is a tendency to read Revelation and the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bowls. Somehow it's only towards the latter part of history. We're no longer doing that. We're viewing these seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls as beginning from that first century forward. So that would include the fall of Rome, who was in power at that time, until our present day, taking us to the very end. And something, as I got refreshed in our study, we are taking these visions and prophecy, we're taking them sequentially. So we're reading the seven letters to the seven churches. We took it, the letters from one to seven in sequence. And then now we're reading the seven seals. We're reading them in sequence because that's how the vision was given to John. But what I'm starting to come to grips with is although we're taking them in sequence, their task and activity may cross over. Meaning, this is what I mean. So the first rider on the first horse was described as an angel riding this horse and he was given a crown and a bow and he went out conquering and to conquer. And then when we get to the second seal, as we will we'll recap later, we have a rider on a red horse with a great sword and he was granted authority to take peace from the earth. What I mean is this, the first horse doesn't have to finish his thing until we get to the second horse. Don't do that. These four Horsemen are working in concert with each other. They were given a task, and that angel over that task is going to see to it that it comes to fruition. But it may also be in concert with these other horses that are doing their task. And when we looked at the first seal, there was this nugget, I thought it was a nugget of truth, where it may be pointing to a particular figure. And you remember this? When we went to Ezekiel 21, Ezekiel speaks about this figure 
in verse 25, and he calls him, you know, O slain, wicked one, the prince of Israel. And Ezekiel, in prophecy, speaks of this figure, says, remove the turban and take off the crown. It's kind of mysterious. But in the latter part of verse 25, there's a time marker, the punishment of the end. So there's this figure who's going to be wearing a turban and a crown, this wicked one, the prince of Israel, a ruler of Israel at the end. And when we looked at that, there was some implication of potentially a great high priest. Meaning that this first seal of vision and prophecy may very well be pointing to a great high priest in the latter times. Meaning someone arriving on the scene in Israel claiming to either be a great high priest or of that pedigree during the end times. And when that happens, our ears should perk up because the end is not very far. And that figure could very well be the catalyst that ushers in the building of the third temple and the reinstitution of the animal sacrifices. The time will come when there will be a temple in Jerusalem and it'll be rebuilt and the sacrificial system will be alive and well. And this particular figure may arrive to the scene and it is a result of this writer's activity. As for the second seal, I call them the tag team partners. Well, really, all four are, but these two, I would say, work a little more closer with one another. When we get to the second rider, the rider on the red horse, that angel was given authority to take peace from the earth by causing disturbances and conflicts between nations and kingdoms, resulting in new wars, the removal of nations, kingdoms, and the rise of other nations and kingdoms. So if you were to take a look back at just at, at world history, so if you were to look at World War I, World War II, and the countless other wars, especially on that part of the world, this rider on the red horse working in concert with the rider on the white horse have something to do with those wars and the rising and the falling of nations and the, unite, the unification of nations and also the dissolution of nations. From that point forward, this rider was given authority to take peace from the earth. Israel is implicated, of course, and I want to suggest to us is the focal point. And as far as how this may look like when we get towards the end of Israel's indignation, peace will be taken from the earth. Israel will enter into a seven-year covenant, but will be betrayed and killed by the sword. And at that time and in that land, many will betray one another and killed by the sword. And those in Israel not killed will be taken into captivity, the land left desolate, and a lot of this activity will be done in the name or authority of Christ. And then when we looked at the third seal, and this is contrary to popular teachings and opinion out there, but the scales that's translated in our, many of our English translations is not speaking about a global famine. Rather, Israel being yoked in some sort of unification of a holy covenant. And how we got to that is we looked at every instance 
of Zugos, and it's equivalent in the Old Testament, and not once was Zugos or yoke ever pointing to scales, like measuring food. And that helps better explain why when we read the third seal of this prophecy, there was four commodities mentioned, wheat, barley, oil, and wine. And the reason why this vision says not to treat unjustly the oil, the wine, is why I believe that this is pointing to the Old Testament daily temple duties and sacrifices. So if you look at the Old Testament, what's prescribed in the law, the people of Israel and you know, the, pri- the priests who are, are administering these sacrifices, there are some regular temple duties, and that would include sacrificing one-year-old lambs twice a day, one in the morning and one in the evening. There was a grain offering, drink offering. But all of these offerings requires these four commodities, which is why I believe that one of the takeaways from the third seal vision is that this vision of prophecy is speaking about the reinstitution of the temple sacrifices and observances. In other words, the dead works that we read about in the New Testament that Paul was combating time and a time again with his fellow Jews. When you get to the book of Hebrews, the writer there was admonishing his fellow brethren to forsake the elementary teachings of Christ, to forsake the dead works, and to pursue faith in Christ. So when we look at the takeaways from the third seal, I believed that it is pointing to dead works being back in action or Judaism is in full effect. And then when we consider Daniel 9, the 70 weeks prophecy, Zechariah 1, Zechariah 6, and Revelation 6, we came to this deduction. It wouldn't surprise me one bit if and when the time came that Israel enters into a covenant with Middle Eastern nations bringing about peace and safety for a period of time. And that prophecy may very well be pointing to that ultimate betrayal and harlotry that Israel will commit at the end times. And then when we try to see where did these three seals fall in our epics, as you recall, we took a look at the Olivet Discourse account given by our Lord. And we took all three gospel accounts of this Olivet Discourse because our Lord gave in great detail what's going to happen from the time he uttered the words back that early first century until the very end. And then when we took what he told his disciples and we broke it up, we ended up getting kind of 12 unique events. And they're all prophecy and signs. And we organized it in this way so that we can at least try to pay attention on kind of where we are in, this ep- in any epoch of time. So we organize it in this way, and I think it also helps us kind of view how God is going to operate. God has a prophetic clock, and he planned things out, and it's going to be fulfilled in, at its appointed time. So for example, when the father planned to bring his son into the world, The scripture says in the fullness of time, Christ was conceived. The fullness of time is the Father's time. 
in his timetable, it was time for Christ to come, to be born, and to fulfill his earthly ministry. So in kind of parallel to that, when it comes to the end times, our father revealed to his son his plans, and the son is going to carry it out at the perfect appointed time. But as far as these three seals, where they fell in the epics of time, when we get to the third epic, our Lord talked about and spoke of Israel always being in war. That started when they were destroyed as a nation by the Romans in 70 AD, but it continues throughout their existence. So there's this epic of time where Israel will always be the object of war. And that's where the first seal falls concerning the people of Israel. And then when we get to the fourth epic, in addition to Israel being the object and subject of wars, that there will be Gentile wars even beyond and outside of that part of the land. And then the third seal right there falls right here at the six o'clock where we will know we're in this epic of time, like I said, when the temple is up and running and the sacrifices and the dead works are going on, we are moving along in God's prophetic clock. Because once this clock strikes 12, Christ is coming. But all of these must take place first before he can come. That finally brings us to today's study. We're going to look now at the fourth seal and the rider on the pale horse. Some of us might know him as the four horsemen uh, or the four horsemen of the apocalypse. That's how it's often categorized. But we were looking at the fourth seal corresponding to this fourth rider riding on a pale green horse. And we're going to see what that has to tell us. I want to tell us up front, I was in for a surprise, and maybe you might too. But without further ado, let's reread our passage of the four horsemen, and then we're going to pick things up in verses 7 and 8 and the fourth seal. So I'll be reading in Revelation 6, verses 1 through 8, and I'll be reading from the NAS. So John wrote, Then I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, And I heard one of the four living creatures saying as with the voice of thunder, Come. I looked and behold a white horse. And he who sat in it had a bow and a crown was given to him. And he went out conquering and to conquer. When he broke the second seal, I heard the second second living creature saying, Come. And another, a red horse, went out. And to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth and that men would slay one another and a great sword was given him. When he broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature saying, Come, I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard something like a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not damage the oil and the wine. When the lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come, I looked, and behold, an ashen horse. And he who sat on it had the name Death, and Hades was following with him. Authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. 
So let's now walk through our two verses today. Let's pick it up again in verse 7. John wrote there, When the Lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come. So the beginning of this verse, when the Lamb broke, and this follows after the breaking of the third seal, again, case in point, these seals are broken in sequence, and that's how we're taking it. And the Lamb, spoken of in verse 7, is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the fourth of the four living creatures made the summon to this other angel saying, come. Pretty straightforward. And now we're going to look at verse 8. And because we're only covering now verse 8 for the remainder of of our time, we're going to take verse 8 in pieces and see what we can glean. So let's look at the first part of verse 8. John said, I looked and behold an ashen horse. Ashen in the Greek, chloros. It means green or greenish or yellowish green or pale green. They're all correct. So you might, depending on your English translation, some might say pale green, like the study of our message. Some might say ashen. Some might say green. It's greenish. But here's an example of what chloros looks like. Here's, here's an actual example. Grass. If, you were to say, if I were to ask you, what color is that? Some of you might say green. Some of you might say yellowish green. Some of you might say kind of a palish green. It's chloros. That's the color of this Greek word. The only other time chloros was used in the New Testament was mentioned in Mark 6 when Jesus fed the 5,000 and he commanded the groups to sit down on the green, the chloros, grass. Meaning, the horse's color was probably more like this. And it took me a while to find this. That's chloros green. When John said he saw and behold a chloros horse, it's like that color. And the next, let's look at the next piece of verse 8. And he says, and he who sat on it had the name death. He is another angel. Name is the familiar Greek word anoma, which means authority. And death, we all know what death is. It's thanatos. And it means the same in English, in the Greek, as it does in English. Death means death, to die. So this angel, now this is going to sound brutal. This angel was given authority to kill people. He had the name death. And that's why I like to call him the death angel. I want to give us some brownie points. Can any of you give me an example in scripture where an an angel was explicitly given authority to kill people and take lives? Anyone want to venture to guess? Sodom is a good one. Anyone else? Where an angel was given authority to kill people. I found one. Sodom and Gomorrah is one. And you might be familiar with this account. In 2 Samuel 24. So by this time, David, King David, is sitting pretty. He has a united kingdom. And there was a time that passed where God was angry with Israel. So they probably weren't keeping their end of the bargain as far as the Old Testament requirements. So when you read 2 Samuel 24, God was angry with Israel, 
And he incited David to take a census, to count his army. And that census took about nine months to collect. But when it came back, that report came back, it was reported to David that collectively between Israel and Judah, they had 1.3 million men that are valiant warriors. It was an impressive army. And when David heard of that, he felt guilty and he confessed of the sin and he asked God for forgiveness. So what happened was God sent the prophet Gad and he offered David a proposition. So David confessed of this sin and he asked God to forgive him. And God says, okay, well, in order for me to remove this iniquity from you, you're going to be disciplined. I'm going to give you three choices, and you get, you get to pick, David, what your discipline is. Maybe we can do that in parenting, right? Okay, here's your three choices you pick. And here were those choices for his punishment. Seven years of famine, three months of running and being pursued by his enemies, or three days of pestilence upon the land. And I want to pick it up, and let's look at what David chose. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us now fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great, but do not let me fall into the hand of man. So he didn't answer it, but he picked the third one. So in verse 15, so the Lord sent a pestilence upon Israel from the morning until the appointed time, that's three days, and 70,000 men of the people from Dan to Beersheba died. Here's where I'm getting at, verse 16. When the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who destroyed the people, it is enough. Now relax your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of the Aronah, the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking down the people, and he said, Behold, it is I who have sinned, it is I who have done wrong, but these are but sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. This is a very unique passage of scripture. But in these three days of pestilence, 70,000 lives were lost at the hand of this angel. What did this angel strike down the people with? Pestilence. Pestilence. A pestilence is a plague. 70,000 men from Israel died from a plague, and this was because of David's sin. But also, God was angry at Israel. I say that to say this there was a death angel in 2 Samuel 24, and there's a death angel here in Revelation 6. Are they the same angel? I don't know. But their role and authority were similar. So let's continue on with, on this death angel in Revelation 6, because he wasn't alone. It says, and Hades was following with him. Hades. This is one of the rare times in Scripture where the Greek word isn't changed, and it's just carried over to our English. Hades in the Greek is Hades in English. I think we're all somewhat familiar with Hades. When we covered Revelation 1, we did a title, a study titled, The Keys of Death in Hades. A little brownie point. Who is the Lord referring to when he says, I have the keys of death in Hades? I have the clice of death in Hades. Yes. He was making mention that he has authority over these two angels. 
In that mini systematic theology study, we looked at all scripture concerning Hades in the, Old, in the New Testament and the Old Testament equivalent of Sheol. And here's what we learned. Hades, for the most part, it was a place and it's located somewhere. It's down as far as we know. It's a city with gates. In Hades, there's agony and flames. Those who experience um, there will experience torment and they are far away from paradise. Those who are in Hades, it's fixed and final. There's no second chance after death. You can't sneak or break out of Hades. It has abandoned souls. And one of the tragic tragedies is for those who reject Christ, that's your only means to be brought back to the Father. Then the Father puts you there, essentially, but Christ will judge and make it official. The Father left them alone because the Father didn't bring that person to the Son. It's the abode of fallen angels and unredeemed souls, and it's a temporary holding place. So when we hear hell, more times than not, we're talking about Hades. But Hades isn't the final abode for the fallen angels and unredeemed soul. As we will learn, there's also this lake of fire where Hades will be thrown into, and that's the final place for the damned. But what I argued then, and I'm going to argue, continue to argue now, is Hades isn't only a place, but it's also an angel. And I'm going to look at verse 8 again. I looked, and behold, an ashen horse, and he who sat in it had the name Death, and Hades was following with him. So how can I say and argue that verse 8 is not speaking about the place Hades, but an angelic being with authority over that place? Do you see it in the verse? What is it? Hades was following him. Okay, you know, moved from the Bay Area to here. The Bay didn't follow me. The Bay Area didn't follow me. A place can't follow someone but a being can. So from here, I want to make a brief conjecture. Okay? I think we've, to some extent, we've heard of some Greek mythology to some extent, right? We've heard about some of these Greek gods and goddesses. Well, I, I googled and I tried to get a family tree of this Greek mythology, and here was one I thought was something that stuck out. Here is a family tree of Greek gods and goddesses. Now, I don't know the accuracy of this family tree. I'm not advocating for Greek mythology. But the reason why I'm bringing this up is there's one particular Greek god who is part of this family tree. Besides Artemis on the bottom, because when you read Acts, there was Artemis of the Ephesians, the great Artemis of the Ephesians. Well, Artemis is part of this Greek god family tree, but there's one in particular that stuck out. Want to guess who it was? Hades. In Greek mythology, there's a Greek god, Hades. In scripture, there's an angelic being with the authority or name Hades. Now, I'm not, again, I'm not advocating for Greek mythology or anything, but I thought that that was something of note. I don't know where these legends came from, but I think as a student of Scripture, we can have an idea of where Greek mythology began. 
Does anyone want to guess when Greek mythology began? If you were to look at the Bible, and I gave us a hint there, Genesis 6. Are you familiar with the Nephilim? The Nephilim. It's pretty bizarre, but when you read Genesis and you go to chapter 6, and there was the Nephilim who was on the earth at that time because the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and cohabitated with them. They were giants walking among the earth at that time. And if you go back to the family tree, who's at the top? Titans. Titans. There were titans back in Genesis 6. So if you kind of put these, you know, if you look at Greek mythology and you look at Revelation 6 account, how could have Greek mythology come into existence? Is it could have been an ideology that survived the flood and morphed over ancient times and then eventually phased out. But there was a time where there was Nephilim and giants or titans walking the earth, and then God wiped them out. But their legends survived in Greek mythology. Back to my case in point. In verse 8, there's two angels, not one, there's two. The death angel and the Hades angel. Both of them were given authority to kill people. You can say the, rider, no, the, the, the red horse with the given a great sword was also given authority to kill people, as well as the rest. But let's look now at the second half of verse 8. It says, authority was given to them. Them is both death and Hades angels. And they were given authority, it says, over a fourth of the earth. And Young's literal translation calls it a fourth of the land. So we get to an interpretive challenge. Okay, so now we have two angels in this vision, the death angel and Hades, and they were given authority over a fourth of the earth or a fourth of the land. What does that mean? Does that mean they have authority over a fourth of the entire earth, the entire globe? Or is it more locally like they have a fourth of the land of a certain part of the earth? I am inclined in one direction, but before I say which one, I want to make this clear of what this passage isn't saying, because we can read this loosely and say, okay, they were given authority, as we will see, to kill people over a fourth of the earth. We might read that and say, okay, they're going to kill 25% of the world's population. So for example, right now we have about 8 billion people. Are we saying that these two angels are going to kill 2 billion people? That's not what it says. And that's not what it means. The emphasis is they have authority to kill within that one-fourth of the earth or the land. They have authority to, doesn't mean that they will, but they have authority over a fourth of the earth or land. But the latter part of verse 8 steered me in that direction. As far as how they're going to kill or how people are going to get killed, to kill with sword, both angels with authority over a fourth of the earth or land have part of that authority to kill with sword. And with all of the legwork that we've done up to this point, remember, Israel, the land and the people are the center point of all prophecy. They're the epicenter. And with this, 
I can't help but read this over a fourth of the land in the Middle East, which would include the land of Israel. Here's what I mean is this. Okay, so we have these two angels. They have authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword. I don't see people in Alaska being taken in war and being killed with swords or even us here in the United States being taken over by swords, especially with the Second Amendment. So I'm drawn to say that this prophecy, again, to kill with sword, which is consistent with all of our learnings, takes us back with the people of Israel and the land of Israel in focus. So even today, if you were to look at the Hamas and Israeli war, I don't know how much is true or not, but you're hearing reports of a hostile takeover of civilians and hostages, and they're being killed with what? Swords, knives. But as we look at prophecy, and we look at it not in a isolation, but we look at it from, let's say, that first century forward, whenever, especially if it concerns the people of Israel, whenever they are slain with a sword, that is a direct influence of these two angels behind the scenes because they were given authority to do that. But the sword isn't the only means these angels will use with famine. We all know what famine means. When there's a famine, there's a lack of food and people are hungry or starving. So these two angels given authority to kill and one of those means is with famine Here's the interpretive challenge. How are those two angels going to kill with famine? Is it, uh, how, how are they going to do it? Is it because there was no rain resulting in a shortage of food or in the land? Did they shut the heavens and there's no rain? And that means there's no crops and there's going to be a shortage of food. Or was it because there was some contamination to the food supply? Or was it because the food supply was withheld? These are just some possibilities, and they're plausible, but how are these angels going to kill with famine? And I'm going to show you how I got to one particular one when I cross-reference Matthew. I think we're all familiar with the days of Noah reference and even the days of Lot, but I'm going to focus on Noah. In Luke 17, Jesus foretold his disciples concerning his return, which takes us to the end times, and he gives some details concerning how it's going to be leading up to his coming. We'll pick it up in verse seven, Luke 17, verse 26. Our Lord says there, And just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it will also be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and they were drinking. They were marrying, they were being given in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same as it happened in the days of Lot. They were eating and drinking, they were buying and they were selling and they were planting and they were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. So civilization in Noah's day, before the flood came, it was fairly normal. People were eating, drinking, Marrying, being given in marriage, up to the day when God opened the floodgates of the heavens and also bursted forth from the bottom of the earth. So they were in the days of Noah. Life was going on as normal. 
Does anyone know how long it took to build Noah's Ark? To know, to know what to build his ark? Does anyone, did anyone have a hundred years? I've heard a hundred. Okay. 75. So now I know that there's a lot of different guesstimates. The point isn't necessarily what the right answer is. But the point is it took some time. And in this particular chart from answerandgenesis.org, they made a guesstimate that it was anywhere between 55 and 75 years. I've heard up to 100, but it took some time for Noah to build this thing. And as he's building it, life is going as normal. So you have about at least half a century, maybe even more, where life just continued as normal. And our Lord said, just as it was in the days of Noah, so it'll be at the coming of the Son of Man. So up to the point before the judgments come upon the earth, it's going to be normal up to that point. So back to our verse. When we consider that reference, how are these two angels going to kill with famine over the fourth of the earth that they were given authority over? And of at least, there could be some other plausible ones, but at least of these three, it could very well be because the food supply was withheld because otherwise the food's going normal. There isn't necessarily a famine, but you can also be brought to starvation if your food supply is cut off. So the, here's further deductions. The death and Hades angels were given authority over a fourth of that part of the Middle East, including Israel, and with that authority, they will kill by sword in that part of the world, and with that authority, they will kill by starvation in that part of the world. And how they will be starved, again, I don't know, but there's you know a lot of popular or common teaching saying, oh, this vision and prophecy is speaking about a global famine, just kind of like the third seal. I go, I don't see a global famine. I'm not saying that there hasn't been famines from the first century forward in certain parts of the world that has taken lives. I'm not talking about that hasn't happened. But as far as the fulfillment of this prophecy, I don't believe it's because of a global famine because our Lord said, remember, they were eating and drinking. You don't eat and drink in famine if there's a global famine leading up to his return. I, 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 I can't get on board with that. There's yet another way these angels will kill people in prophecy. They're going to kill with pestilence. Now, pestilence here is thanatos. It's the same name as the angel. It's death. They will kill with death. And this can be rendered that angels were given authority to kill with death and there's a couple of possibilities, and I want to talk about one at least first. So these angels, given authority over a fourth of the land on that part of the world, one means is having people killed and die because of a plague or a sickness or a disease, just like our Second Samuel 24 account. So for example, a bubonic plague, COVID, or any other plague. That's a possibility, and that's plausible. But as I surveyed all of Thanatos in the New Testament, I was drawn to 2 Corinthians and what Paul had to say there. Did you know Paul called Judaism a ministry of Thanatos, a ministry of death? And he makes a contrast between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. I want to pick it up in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 7. Paul says there, But if the ministry of death, but if the ministry of Thanatos in letters engraved on stones, came with glory so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory on his face, fading as it was. 
how will the ministry of the Spirit to be even more with glory? For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. So Paul makes a clear contrast between the old covenant, the new covenant, and let's say that old covenant is encompassed in the law, the Ten Commandments. So you have on one side the old covenant, the ministry of death, the ministry of condemnation, and it's contrasted with the ministry of the Spirit and the ministry of righteousness. And why I was drawn to this, it's like, wait, Paul calls dead works or Judaism or following the law as a ministry of Thanatos. And in, I, I thought it was bizarre when our Lord in his Olivet Discourse, when he says, but pray that your flight would not be in winter, will not be in the winter, or on a Sabbath, just kind of out of nowhere, for then there will be great tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Why shouldn't the people of Israel pray that their flight wouldn't be on their high day, holy day, the Sabbath? Why? Could it be? Because in doing works on the Sabbath at that time could result in a death penalty for you? We all know to some extent that among rabbinical teachings and traditions, in addition to following the law, they had their own man-made laws. So if God's word says one thing, they wrote down a hundred things. And also within their law, there were some things that deserve a death penalty. So if you were to ask me, these two angels, the death angels and the Hades angels, when they were authority over a fourth of the, the land, a fourth of the earth, to kill with Thanatos, with death, it could be a plague of some sort, but could also be because of a religious conviction for disobeying the law. And they, they had authority to bring about those death sentences. We're getting, we're getting towards the end. In, ver, in the latter part of verse 8, we looked at how or the means that these angels given authority to kill over the fourth of the land or fourth of the earth. But by whom will he kill? Will they kill? And the latter part of verse 8 says, by wild beasts of the earth. Now, I don't know about you. When I read Revelation and I read this part, authority was given over them over the fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. I'm reading that and like, wow, I mean, are we talking about Rome? Back in the Colosseum where, you know, you're thrown to the lions. Is that how they're going to be killed by wild beasts? That's how my mind went. So it could be taken literally to mean like to be killed by an actual wild beast, a lion, a bear, etc. But did you know that it can also be taken figuratively to mean evil nations or Gentile nations? So I'm going to look at Scripture to find the more appropriate interpretation. In Deuteronomy 7, so God promises to depossess the Canaanites from the land of Canaan. And when you read the Bible and you're in the Old Testament, the land of Canaan is Israel today. But back in ancient and ancient times, that was called the land of Canaan. And before they were led there through Joshua, that land was occupied by Canaanites. 
But we're going to pick it up where God made this promise to depossess them in verse in chapter 7, Deuteronomy 7, verse 22. The Lord your God will clear away these nations, the Canaanites, before you little by little. You will not be able to put an end to them quickly. For the wild beasts would grow too numerous for you, but the Lord your God will deliver them before you and will throw them into great confusion until they are destroyed. Folks, in this passage... Wild beasts are the Canaanites. And God is promising to, de- to get rid of them, not right away, but slowly. And eventually, the land will be all theirs. God called the Canaanites wild beasts. So the nations who occupy the land of Israel before and after Israel possessed the land are wild beasts. And if you're not convinced, Ezekiel hammers this home. In Ezekiel 5, verses 16 through 17, concerning the judgment against Jerusalem, Ezekiel writes, When I send against them the deadly arrows of famine, which were for the destruction of those whom I will send to destroy you, then I will also intensify the famine upon you and break the staff of bread. Moreover, I will send on you famine and wild beasts, and they will bereave you of children. Plague and bloodshed will also pass through you, and I will bring the sword on you. I, the Lord, have spoken. Ezekiel 5, if you put it side by side with Revelation 6, there is very strong similarities. They both speak about famine, wild beasts, and sword. And in this passage, both famine and wild beasts will bereave them of children. So who are the wild beasts in this passage? And the clue is, they're going to be the ones who will bring about bloodshed and kill with sword. I don't know, have you ever seen a lion kill you with a sword? Or a bear kill you with a sword? But they're speaking about wild, they're likened to wild beasts. Wild beasts are Gentile nations. Gentile nations. So here's what I mean. In this vision and prophecy, when these angels will kill by wild beasts, I don't believe it's talking about that the angels are going to release wild animals, like literal animals, to kill among the fourth of the population it was given authority over. Doesn't, doesn't sit. I believe that both of these angels are going to rise up nations living in Jerusalem and around Jerusalem at the appointed time. I believe that the nations who are living in that land and around that land will take the lives of innocent Israeli civilians, including those who live in and around the land. I'm going to put this together. I'm going to give us the Kataroha Amplified translation of what we learned. And you let me know if this makes this passage a little more clearer. When the Lord Jesus broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come. I looked, and behold, a pale green horse, and the angel who sat on it had the authority over death, and the angel over Hades was following the death angel. 
Authority was given to the death and Hades angels over a fourth of the land in the Middle East, including Israel, to kill among the fourth of the population with sword, slaying, and with starvation, and with religious persecution resulting in in death to those who refused to obey the law, and to be killed by the Gentile nations living in and around Jerusalem. So if we took all of that Old Testament parallels that I was making, this makes it a little more in focus. So with that, let's visualize the scope of this prophecy. And I've been telling us where it is. Because these two angels were given authority over a fourth of the land. Here is a picture of the Middle East and the Middle Eastern countries as we know it today. I believe, I can actually put the other angel there because he's not alone, but both the death and the Hades angels have authority over the Middle East, primarily. And when I asked my new buddy, Chat GPT, you know, give me a list of the Middle Eastern countries. There they are, he, and the Chat gave me 17 of them. And a lot of these are familiar to us. But as far as this fourth seal, that's what's in scope. And the angels were given authority over the Middle East to kill Israel by sword, causing Israel to starve, and inciting a holy war against them, including a religious death penalty. And this will be done by wild beasts or Gentile nations living in Jerusalem or Israel and around Jerusalem or Israel. And many Israelites and other innocent civilians' lives will be lost. Heading into this study, when I read, especially the four horsemen or these first four seals, I approached this with a global macro view. And I put us in there, the United States, like I said, Alaska, Antarctica, you could put us all in there. But now having concluded our study of the four four horsemen, I've changed course. Because remember, these four horsemen, when we looked at the parallel account or the closest to the parallel account in the Old Testament, They were sent by God, and it's concerning the people in the land of Israel. So God uses these angels on horses to bring a report back to God, and then God will give them instructions on what they are to do. So I'm no longer longer looking at the four horsemen as a macro view. I'm looking at it with a micro view, Middle East and Israel in focus. Now here's one of the takeaways for me. What were the colors of the four horsemen again? Let's go on one, one by one, okay? The rider on the four horse, the, the first rider on the first horse was white. The second rider on the second horse, that horse was red. The third rider on the third horse is black. And the fourth rider on the fourth horse is chloros. Does that look familiar? You're telling me that the colors of the four horsemen happen to be the colors of the Arab Muslim flag. And what's another coincidence? Free Palestine, because they're claiming that that land should be a state of Palestinian rule. And Israel is saying, uh, no, this was promised to our forefathers. Then, I was like, okay, I was looking for, show me a map of that fourth part of the world, but 
with their flags implemented as part of that map. But you see right there where the star is, off the, right, right there, there's Israel. But look what's all around it. A lot of Arab Muslim countries and a common theme are these colors. Coincidence? With God, there's no coincidence. I think not. Now that we've gone through this study, all those Middle Eastern countries and nations that were brought to power, the Iraqs, the Irans, the Syrias, you name it, who's responsible for putting them there? God, but these four horsemen are working in concert so that what was written of, spoken of, and decreed concerning the land and the people of Israel will be fulfilled. So this whole Palestinian and Israeli conflict, it's not a coincidence. The Palestinian state and the neighboring nations could very well be the wild beast of the earth spoken of of this prophecy that God will use to bring judgment upon his people for their sin and rebellion. Remember, you know, like when we're asking, like, what are we waiting for until the end comes? The end of this world as we know it will come to an end when the Father says, I am done disciplining my people, Israel, for their sin and rebellion. Remember, when you read the gospel accounts and you read when our Lord was brought before Pilate because the Jews were wanting to have him killed, and when Pilate examined him, saying, I find nothing wrong with this man, and tried to release him, the religious leaders didn't want anything to do with it. They're like, if you do that, you're no friend of Caesar because anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. And we know the story. They were even presented because what was customary at the feast of Passover was they would release a prisoner. The Romans would release a prisoner and they brought before them Jesus and Barabbas, who was an insurrectionist, a murderer. And they brought it before the Jews. Who do you want me to release to you, the king of the Jews or Barabbas? They said, release to us Barabbas. But what, are we gonna, but what about Christ? What wrong has he done? And what did they say? Let his blood be on our head and the head of our children. So from that point forward, God is punishing them for killing their Messiah. But when the Father is done punishing them, and these four horsemen are instrumental in that, when that is done, then the end can come. Then Christ can come. That's what we've learned when we considered our study of Daniel. A lot of our legwork that we've done is that we're kind of waiting until that that punishment comes to an end. I know a lot can be repeated and said, but we're going to end it right there. So that concludes our study of the four seals and the four horsemen. Up next, the fifth seal. It wouldn't surprise me if I get corrected again. I've been, I've been getting corrected every which way because it's so hard to try to get to the truth of things. But I'm going to approach continue to approach our study, the fifth seal and following, the same we've been doing for over two years now. Remember, I'm coming to Scripture with a blank slate. 
We're going to follow good disciplines, and I want God's Word to correct me and to equip me so that not only I can know to the best of my abilities what the truth is and the faith that I hold, but also that that hope within me can grow in eager anticipation for the end to come. What's sad is a lot of bad stuff needs to happen first before we can go to be with Christ. But in the process, as we see these prophecies unfold, as we see the developments going on in the Middle East, especially concerning Israel, and this is where we as a church, we, we know or we can know what God is doing. And in the meantime, we are continuing to gather as we see the day approaching. But I'm going to, come to continue to come to our study with a clean slate, exercise good disciplines, and see where it takes us. Because I can tell you where that took me. I wasn't expecting it. But by coming with a blank slate, I think there's just too many... You know what happened? When there's too many coincidences, it's no longer a coincidence. It's God working. And that happens to be the case, even in this study. Amen? Amen. That wraps up our deep dive look at what is often referred to as the four horsemen of the apocalypse, or the riders on the colored horses in Revelation chapter 6. If you've missed any of our past messages on this topic or just want to hear them again, you can find them all on our website, truthmatterschurch.org. Simply click on the podcast tab. You can also find us on Sermon Audio. Contending for the faith one verse at a time. This is Truth Matters Church.